Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we're starting the life of Joseph tonight. And before we get to Genesis 37, uh, you might want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. And as you're turning to Psalm 73, I don't know, some of you may remember way back in 1981, there was a famous rabbi, his name was Harold Kushner, and he wrote a book, it's kind of a famous book, it was a New York Times bestseller, and the book is called this, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And this book was dedicated to his young son, Aaron. His son died at the age of 14 back in 1977 from an incurable genetic disease. And so you've maybe probably asked that question before. Why do bad things happen? Why do I go through times of suffering and trial? Uh, One of the most painful experiences you can probably go through is the loss of a child. I have a really, really good friend, and I know you guys have heard this um, many years ago, probably six, seven years ago, um, their four-year-old son contracted spinal meningitis and had to go to Children's Hospital and basically was on life support, and they had to make the very hard decision um, as parents to take their son off life support. And so they they lost their four-year-old son. And so there's pain, there's suffering in the world, and um, you have to stop and ask those questions. Why do people get diseases and die? Uh, Why is there rape, and why is there murder, and why does a a young woman get killed by a drunk driver? All these types of things. And so these are questions that, if we're honest with life, we struggle with, even as Christians. Why do bad things happen? I'm not going to say to good people, because there's no such thing as as a good person, but why do bad things happen? And this is nothing new. The psalmist expressed this same frustration and we're not going to read the entire psalm but we're just going to read the first five verses of psalm 73 now this is asaph not david but i want you to notice his lament or his frustration so psalm 73 1 through 5 truly god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Verse 3 is important. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now that's that same question, why do the wicked prosper? Why do wicked people get away with murder, if you will, and nothing bad ever happens? They tend to get promoted, they get the best bodies, they get the best toys, they get the best jobs, and they're wicked people, they they don't follow the rules, and here I am as a good Christian trying to live according to God's rules, and those things don't happen to me, I have to suffer. And so the psalmist is saying, why are these wicked people prospering and getting away with murder, and so I'm bringing up these issues tonight because the, the story of Joseph really addresses that issue. 
the issue of suffering and why do bad things happen. Now, there have been some interesting and unbiblical answers to that question throughout the centuries. For example, Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, they would basically teach that your suffering is merely an illusion. It's not really true. Now, that's not helpful to say it's an illusion. And so the best you can do in that type of Eastern mysticism is to try hard and hope that you do enough good deeds that you get good karma. And maybe you can be reincarnated as something better in the next life. But if this life's painful, the best thing you can do is deal with it and try your best. Um, So that's kind of an extreme version of an unbiblical answer. But there's also the word faith prosperity gospel. The word faith, name it, claim it. God does not want you to be sick. God does not want you to be in poverty. God does never want you to be suffering. And so when you become a Christian, all those things should go away. And if you're suffering or if you're sick, then you just don't have enough faith to claim your miracle. And so if you just claim your miracle, if you just positively confess and and say these things into existence, then all your problems will go away. So that's an unbiblical answer as well. So David Hume, he was a Scottish philosopher in the 1700s. He was very famous during the English Enlightenment period for opposing Christianity. He was one of the the chief atheists during the 1700s. And basically he had a book called Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion and he gave this argument. So this was his argument and this argument is used a lot by atheists today. So here's his argument. This was back in the 1700s. It's a very famous argument, but let me give you his argument. He says this, I'm going to quote him. If God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he's impotent. If he's able but not willing, then he's evil. If he's both willing and able, then why is there evil? That's his argument. So let me state it like this. This is the way he would state it. If God is all-loving, then by his nature as all-loving, he would want to end evil. Because he's all-loving. If God is all-powerful then by his nature as an all-powerful God, he would have the power to end evil. So, what's the conclusion? This atheistic conclusion. Answer, if evil exists, then God must not either be all-loving, or he would stop evil, or he must not be all-powerful because he can't stop evil. If he's loving and doesn't stop evil, then he's immoral. If he's all-powerful and doesn't stop evil, then he must not be as sovereign as Christians think he is. And so the answer that a lot of atheists give to suffering is God must not be loving and God must not be powerful. Now, we don't have time to answer those questions tonight, but what does the Bible say? Is God all-loving? Yes. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Is there evil in the world? Yes. Is it because God's not all-loving or God, not all-powerful evils in the world? No. Okay. We can sit here all night long and wonder why there's evil in the world. And you can kick the can all the way back, and for whatever reason, God has ordained it to happen for a purpose, and he has not stopped it. 
And it's not because he doesn't love us, and it's not because he's not powerful enough to stop it. He is either permitting it, allowing it, or ordaining it for a purpose. So, what's my job as your pastor? To be a good guy. No, <laughs> what's my job as your pastor? One of my jobs is this, and maybe you don't know this. One of my jobs as your pastor is to help you suffer well. To be prepared to suffer. So the question is not if I will suffer, but when I suffer, am I prepared to do that? And I don't know if you can really fully prepare for suffering, but we're going to talk about that tonight. So we live in a culture that wants you to be, and I, I got three H words here, okay? We live in a culture that wants you to be happy, healthy, and hot. And by hot, I mean, I mean like what, what the word means. Good looking, sleek, washboard abs, perfect smile, supermodel body. And so we live in a culture that does not want to suffer, does not like evil, wants comfort, wants um, convenience, and, and doesn't really understand this whole idea of suffering. But what does the Bible say about this? Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials of various kinds. Count it joy when you go through trials of various kinds. And then Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It is counterintuitive to rejoice in suffering. But the Bible calls us to be joyful in the midst of suffering and trials. Why? Because God is shaping our character. God is molding us to the image of Christ. And we also know this truth goes hand in hand with suffering. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God works out all things for good. Now, when you're going through it, it may not feel good or appear good, but God is working it out for His good and His glory. So what we're going to see tonight as we start the life of Joseph is a man who experienced extreme suffering for a long period of time. He went through some serious sufferings. But at the same time, God was providentially and sovereignly working in his life to bring about a glorious purpose. And so Joseph went through the crucible. He went through the furnace. He went through the ringer, if you will. But God had a purpose in that. 
And so as we think about Joseph, one of the things that we want to at least begin to think about is how do we suffer well for the glory of God, especially when it doesn't make sense. Again, it's not if you will suffer, but when you will suffer. So Joseph deals with suffering. And and let me just say this. What if it is God's plan for you to suffer as his means of getting you to be more like Jesus? Would you welcome it or would you run away from it as fast as you could? If God's plan is to get you more to look like Jesus and he does that through suffering, we should welcome God's plan even when it doesn't make sense. So, we are going to dive into the life of Joseph. Now, Genesis 37 is where it starts, so there's 36 chapters in Genesis leading up to this. Just real quick. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, who is Joseph's dad? Jacob. Jacob was a for lack of a better term, Jacob's name means heel grabber or trickster or conniver or deceiver. Jacob was a deceiver for most of his life. Remember he deceived Esau out of the birthright, his brother? But then there was that one night where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord The angel grabbed Jacob's hip and torqued his hip and wounded him and changed his name to Israel. Okay, and so Jacob had many sons from different moms. Remember, there's Rachel and Leah, and then he actually had a few concubines. And so, anyway, here we are in the story where Joseph is a 17-year-old boy. He's He's a young man. He's a teenager. And this is where we pick up in the story of Joseph. So now... Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 37. That's a long introduction, but I'm trying to set the stage for suffering. And it'll make more sense when you see what happens to Joseph. So, there are four scenes. Now, this is, we're we're actually going to be looking at Hebrew narrative. Okay, so this is written by Moses. It's narrative in that it tells an account. And oftentimes, these accounts happen in scenes or vignettes. And so we're going to see four scenes unfold tonight. And here's scene one. And I call it, the dreamer is hated. The dreamer is hated. So let's read together verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, or of them, to their father. Now Israel, now remember, Israel is also a metaphor for Jacob. So when you see Israel there, it's not necessarily talking about the nation at this point. It's, it's just another name for Jacob. Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe 
of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Here is the dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right. Joseph is a 17-year-old teenager working out in the fields. And how does Moses, our narrator, introduce Joseph? He's out in the fields with Bilhah and Zilpah's sons. Now, who are Bilhah and Zilpah? Those were concubines. Those were the third and fourth place wives that Jacob had after Rachel and Leah. And this is a reminder that favoritism has always been an issue in Jacob's family. But I want to show you the key word that shows up in this first scene. And the key word is hated. It appears in verse 4. The brothers hated him. It appears in verse 5, they hated him even more. In verse 8, they hated him even more. And then how does it end? In verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. So it's no accident that that hatred, that jealousy keeps getting ramped up as the story continues to unfold. And I don't know if it's a passive-aggressive type of anger, but it's an anger that's boiling to a point that it's going to happen. Now, what brings about this anger? Why is there anger? Now, there's already anger because Jacob loved Joseph more than all the other boys. That's enough to make the boys jealous. But what happens? Well, why is this dreamer so hated? There's a couple of, there's a few reasons, okay? Well, first of all, Joseph brings a bad report to his father on his brothers. Now, you see this here in verse, uh, where are we here? Verse 2. Oh, yeah, sorry, <laughs> I'm looking down. Joseph brought a bad, yeah, you guys are seeing it more than I am. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father, a bad report. Now, we don't know what the bad report was. It's, it's left ambiguous. We don't know what Joseph did, but 
we don't know, is he purposely trying to make his brothers mad? Is he being a little tattletale? The word for bad in Hebrew means evil. And that word bad report often meant a disparaging report. So we don't really know what Joseph did, but Joseph could have let his father deal with it and not tattle on his pesky little brothers or his pesky brothers. Okay. Think about Joseph here. He's a 17-year-old teenager. Things are going to his head because he's the favorite. And he is a tattletale. And he goes back to Jacob and says, I got some dirt on my brothers I want to tell you about. So that's the first reason why they got mad. Who knows what they were doing, but Jacob needed to know this from Joseph in this tattletale bad report. Okay, so that's number one reason why they hated him, because he was a tattletale. He was a pesky little upstart. But here's the other reason. The coat of many colors. Jacob gives Joseph a coat of many colors that he does not give to the other brothers. Now, before I discuss what this coat meant, I want you to notice something that we will see as we go through the life of Joseph, and that is pay attention to the clothing. Clothing and what people wear plays a vital role in the narrative. As you pay attention to the clothing, it, the clothing helps tell the story. Clothes pay a, play, pay a big part in this. Now, this was no ordinary coat. It wasn't like a tunic that he just put over. Many scholars believe it probably had long sleeves flowing to the ground, intricate, embroidered, um, ornamented stuff. It, 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 it was probably just this. It wasn't like overalls or a tunic. It was something spectacular, and, and it had many colors, which was very expensive in that day because of the dyes that they had to get. And you may ask, well, why? what's the, what's the significance of the coat of many colors? Well, here's the significance, the symbolism. It was a symbol of royalty. What Jacob is doing is Jacob is not subtly, but in front of his, his other brothers, his sons, he's crowning Joseph with royalty as his favorite son by giving him this long, colorful, flowing rope. Only Joseph gets the quote-unquote robe of royalty. So he's already tattled on his brothers. He's already the favorite son. And not only that, but to add insult to injury, Jacob, the dad, gives him this coat of many colors. And you can imagine the conversations they had when they saw him. And, and the picture, picture this, okay? If you're a 17-year-old boy and you got that coat from your dad, are you going to take that thing off? No, you're going to wear it with style, aren't you? You're going to strut around and be proud to wear that coat and so every time he walked into the house or to the tent, he's wearing that coat. And the brothers are just seething mad. And Joseph's, you know, he's 17, so let's, we'll, we'll give him a little bit of a pass here. But here's the third issue. These dreams. It's these dreams. Now, why are there two dreams? Well, the reason there are two dreams is because if the first dream happened, it could have just been an anomaly. 
It could have just been something out of the ordinary. It could have just been like, okay, I had a dream. It was, it was unusual. It doesn't mean anything. But a second dream confirms the truth of what is supposed to happen in the sense that there are two, two, quote, two witnesses or two dreams to, to authenticate what is really supposed to happen. So what are these dreams? Well, the first dream is they're out in the fields and there's these sheaves. Okay, so this, this wheat. And Joseph's wheat rises up and all the other wheat bow down to him. Now, what's the, you don't have to read between the lines. What's the symbolism? The family is going to bow down to Joseph. Now, Joseph doesn't know what this means at this point in his life as a 17-year-old. He just has a dream that's given to him sovereignly by God that shows that the family and the brothers are going to bow down to him. Well, they get really mad and they're basically saying, what's the meaning of this? Are you, are you going to rule over us? Are you going to reign over us? Or who do you think you are strutting around here with your coat of many colors? Are we supposed to bow down to you? Okay, then he dreamed another dream. What's the second dream? The sun, moon, and 11 stars. Now, how many, how many brothers are there? 11 stars are going to bow down to Joseph as the one star. Same concept. The whole point is, is that the family and the brothers are going to bow down to Joseph. So one dream is terrible enough for Joseph. But now the second dream is the nail in his coffin as far as his brothers are concerned. The first time they don't tell it to, jo to Jacob. The second time they do. Do you notice that? Verse 10, when he told it to his father and his brothers... His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous, but I want you to notice verse 11. His father kept the saying in mind. Now, why did Jacob keep the saying in mind? He kept it in the back of his mind because Jacob was a product of a dream. Remember the ladder, Jacob's ladder? <laughs> the ladder coming down from heaven. Jacob knows that God often speaks in dreams at that point in time in history. And Jacob's probably thinking to himself, God spoke to me in a dream. The ladder of the angels ascending and descending. And if Joseph had a dream, there might be some truth to it, whether I like to admit it or not. I'm not going to discount the dream because I know God speaks through dreams. He spoke to me in a dream with the latter when I fell asleep. So maybe there's something to this. I, I need to rebuke him because this sounds a little outlandish, but there may be some truth to it. So at the end of scene one, the hatred has escalated to the point of extreme jealousy. The brothers are seething mad. They hated him, they hated him even more, they hated him even more, and now they are burning with jealousy. All right. Let's see scene two. Oh. Let's go back, because I think I skipped a blank. Oh, yeah. The brothers. I think the brothers freaked out because of the two dreams, because growing up in this family, they had to know it was from God also. They had to see that it was God's ordained plan, yet they couldn't do anything about it. So instead of submitting to God's sovereignty, they fought it. 
It's a lot like that today. I've said this many times. You can't fight God's sovereignty. You will lose every time. Now, you may think you can fight it, but you can't. If God has ordained something to happen, or if God has a plan for you, your best bet is to submit to his plan and not try to fight against it. Now, let's see scene two. The dreamer obeys. This is a short little section, but let's see what happens. And I don't know if I have any notes on this. You may just have to listen. I don't think there's anything that, that, that's in your notes. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are, you, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at, at Dothan. Okay. This is kind of strange. The boys go pasture the flock in a place called Shechem. Now, Shechem had a bad history because that's where their sister Dinah was raped and Simeon and Levi took revenge and slaughtered the entire town. So this was not a good place for Jacob and his family to hang out. Why his brothers were pasturing there, we don't know. But Jacob's probably a little bit worried, like, why are my boys hanging out there? It's not a good place to, that's not a good neighborhood for them to go back to. That, things didn't happen well at Shechem. So Jacob does the unthinkable. He sends his 17-year-old son by himself to go search for the brothers. Jacob, you go and find your brothers. Now, how far was it? That's a 50-mile journey. A 50-mile journey. Why would a dad send a 17-year-old boy who is the favored son with a coat of many colors on a 50-mile trek by himself? Well, Joseph obeys and said, Here I am. I'll, I'll do it, Dad. He goes alone, <laughs> 50 miles, and as he shows up near Shechem, he's, he's wandering around. And this mysterious man comes and says, uh, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Okay, I know who you are. You're, you're Jacob's boy. You're the young man with the coat of many colors. You've got the 11 brothers. They've gone down to Dothan. That's another 25 miles away from where Shechem was. So he had to go another 25 miles. So the 17-year-old boy is 75 miles away from home all by himself seeking out these brothers. 
Now, before anything happens, if you've never read this story before and you just like know drama, what are you thinking? This is not good. <laughs> this is not good for Joseph to be all alone out there by himself without the protection of his dad with his brothers who hate him. Okay? So that scene two is mainly just Joseph heads out, goes that 75-mile trek on his own as a 17-year-old boy, wandering around looking for his brothers, and then here we get to scene three, and he finds them. So here's scene three, the deceiver's scheme. The deceiver's scheme. So let's keep reading. Genesis 27 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits or cisterns. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. They sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Okay, this is dramatic tension because this young boy, 17-year-olds, wandering around. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. How did they know it was him? What's he wearing? You can't miss that coat of many colors. He's worn it the whole trip. He's not going to take that thing off. They saw the flowing coat of many colors. They knew. And immediately when they saw that, they're thinking, what are they thinking? That little worm. That upstart. Why would you travel 75 miles to come rub it into our faces by wearing that coat? And you ask yourself, Here's the question you're going to ask. Why does Joseph wear the coat? Well, he's 17. He could have just been clueless. I like the coat. Or he could have been flaunting it, saying, I'm the favored son, and I'm coming to rescue you guys. So I had these dreams, and you better follow me back to dad. But something happens between them seeing him from a distance and him finally approaching that now the hatred has turned to let's conspire to kill him it's moved from hatred to murder 
And notice what they call him. They don't even call him by his name. What do they say? There in verse, at the end of verse 19, here comes this dreamer. Literally in the Hebrew, you know what it says in the Hebrew? The Lord of dreams. The king of dreams. Here comes that king of dreams. That dreamer. And so what do they want to do with him? Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into this pit. And we'll leave him to die and we'll go back and blame it on a wild animal. Now, what do they want to kill? If you read it very carefully, they want to kill Joseph, yes, but more importantly, what do they want to kill? They want to kill the dream. They don't want this dream to come true of them bowing down to him. Now, Reuben, who's Reuben? It's not a sandwich. Reuben's the oldest son. Okay, he's the firstborn. And Reuben suddenly has a conscience. What does Reuben say? No, let's, let's not kill him, guys. Let's, let's think twice about this. Now, you have to ask a question. Why does Reuben suddenly have a conscience? Well, earlier in Genesis, he committed incest with one of Jacob's wives. And maybe he's feeling guilty. We don't know. Does he want to make it up to his dad and, and not have his dad be crushed that the, the youngest son here... Um, is dead. So Joseph, we don't know what the text, the text doesn't tell us what Joseph says, but I'm, I'm sure he probably came up and said, hey guys, I've traveled 75 miles and dad's looking for you. Is everything all right? Before he can even give his speech, what do they do? Verse 22, Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water. They stripped him, violently assaulting him. Remember what the robe is a symbol of? Royalty. In other words, they're, they're dethroning this royal son. You think you're the royal son? You think you're the favorite son? No, you're not. We're taking that jacket, that coat of many colors off of you, and we're going to throw you into a pit, a cistern. Now, what was a cistern back then? It was very convenient. It was, it was like a bottle-shaped hole, usually 15 to 20 feet deep, and there was no water in it. Now, cisterns were used to collect water, like a well, but it must have been the dry season, so there's no water in it. So they throw him in there. Now, why is this convenient? They did not have to, quote-unquote, technically shed blood. They did not have to beat him up or stone him or murder him or lay a knife in him. In their minds, they could not be guilty of murder but they knew what would happen if he sat there with no water in that pit. He would die of starvation. So technically, we didn't murder him, but we put him in a situation where he would die naturally of starvation, unless maybe somebody came by and saw him, but he's 15 feet, 20 feet down there. 
And so um, they would not be guilty of, of murder. Now here's where, when you read Hebrew narrative very carefully, these little details are, are very telling. Look at verse 25. What does the verse 25 say? Then they sat down to eat. You're like, well, why is that detail in there? Do you see how callous they are? It's as if nothing ever happened. They just committed this heinous act against their little brother, and all they think about is, we want to sit down and have a sandwich. There's no sense of conscience. They're not bothered. They want to eat lunch. And then it just so happens, as they're eating lunch, that the Ishmaelites pass by. And Judah, who is the fourth son, has an idea. Now, wait a minute. This, we could kill two birds with one stone. We could say that Joseph died but instead of leaving him in the cistern, we can get some money out of this. So let's sell him into slavery. At least if we're going to leave him to die, we can at least get some money out of it and sell him into slavery. We can kill two birds with one stone. We can, kill, we can sell him into slavery. He'll be taken down to Egypt. He'll be as good as dead. Dad will never know what happened to him. So the brothers are driven by greed. They're ruthless. And there's irony here because who are the Ishmaelites? Who was Ishmael? They're the descendants of Abraham's illegitimate son. That's kind of very interesting. <laughs> Just a little twist that the Ishmaelites are the ones that come by and, and quote-unquote, he's sold into slavery. Now think about Joseph for a moment. At this, He's a 17-year-old boy. He's alone, naked, hungry, at the bottom of a pit, and now he's been sold into slavery. And what's he probably thinking? When's dad coming to get me? When's dad going to come back and get me? I obeyed him. He sent me on this trek, this 75-mile trek. I found the brothers, but now they betrayed me. They've beaten me, they've stripped me, and now they've thrown me in the cistern. I don't have the coat anymore, and now I'm being sold into slavery. I'm going down to Egypt. I'm never going to see my family or my dad again. And remember, he's only 17. I mean, I, I can't imagine this. So, like, What are 17-year-olds thinking about? School, girls, cars, video games. I mean, this is a very traumatic thing to happen to a 17-year-old now, you can, you can say, Joseph, you had it coming because you were a little upstart. You're a snarky little 17-year-old that you know, was the favorite son. But did he deserve to be beaten and thrown into a cistern and sold into slavery? No. At this point in the narrative, we all want to scream out, this is not fair. Why is this happening to Joseph? Yeah, he can be a little bit annoying with his dreams. He can be a little bit annoying <laughs> with the coat of many colors. But really, this is not fair. 
This is treacherous. This is betrayal. He's sold into slavery, and he's heading the opposite direction, south to Egypt. That's not the end of the story. There's one final scene. Scene four is a father is deceived. Now, let's go finish out the narrative here. Let's look at verse 29 through the end of the chapter. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy's gone, and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, we don't know where Reuben was when this happened. Maybe he skipped lunch to go check on the, the flocks, but the text doesn't tell us where he went when he comes back. It just says when Reuben returned to the pit, he didn't see Joseph in there, and he's guilt-ridden. So what's the great deception that they're going to do to Dad? We can't go back and fess up and tell what we did. So we've got to make up a story. So we'll kill an animal, and we'll use that blood, and we'll dip the coat in the blood, and we'll take it back to Dad and say, Hey, Dad, identify this jacket. Is this, is this jo Joseph's jacket? Now, I want you to think about the irony of this. These conniving brothers are deceiving Jacob with clothing closely related to a goat. Now, we didn't go back and read this, but earlier in Jacob's life, didn't he trick his brother Esau by wearing the clothing of a goat? What goes around comes around in, the in this family of deceivers. In other words, these sons have learned well from their father, whose name's Jacob, which means deceiver. Jacob assumes the worst. He believes the lie. My son is dead. He's been torn to pieces. He's gone. He's so distraught. He doesn't want comfort. He really just wants to die. I just want to go to Sheol. It's basically a way of saying, I just want to die and go see my son, Jacob. But the brothers got away with it, didn't they? No one's ever going to know what happened. They were master deceivers. Well, at that point in time, that's what they thought. The text doesn't say this, but I wonder what they were feeling the night they went and laid their heads on their pillow. Are they guilty? Are they tossing and turning in their sleep because they are all guilty? Are they wondering? Think about it. There's 11 of them. What if one of them is thinking, 
one of you guys is going to let it slip. Which one of you brothers is going to let it? So they're, they're, they're not only guilty of what they did, but they're also living in fear that maybe one of the other brothers is going to slip up and tell on them. So they're living, or maybe one of the brothers is going to blame somebody else to get in their dad's good graces. And so this is, this is going to backfire in the family. Now, here's the thing about Genesis, if we were to study the whole book. Genesis is full of dysfunctional families. And these are not pagan families. These are God's chosen people. This is who God chose to start the nation of Israel with. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And we often wonder, why would God choose this family, this dysfunctional family of deceivers, and people that commit incest, and people that do all these crazy things, and sell their brother into slavery? Why would God show grace to this family? That makes no sense. God, why are you using these people? These dysfunctional people, why in the world are you using them? Well, the moment you ask that question, you've got to stop and say, well, <laughs> God, why did you save me? Why do you love me? I'm just as dysfunctional as they are. <laughs> so here's the thing. Until we realize that it doesn't make sense for God to show us grace either, He's not obligated to love us or show us mercy, but he does it for the sake of his good pleasure. We can't explain why God loves us, but we're sure thankful that he does. So anytime you say, God, why did you, why did you deal with the Israelites in such a patient way? Stop and say, God, thank you, because that's, I'm just as bad as they are. <laughs> and, you've, and you've shown patience towards me. All right, you get to the end of the story, and you ask the question, Where's God in all this? Do you see God's name mentioned anywhere in this? I thought this was the Bible. Where's God in all of this? Why did this evil have to happen? Why did Joseph's brothers get away with it? Where's justice? There's a twist at the end of verse 36. Meanwhile... Or as the original Hebrew would say, it just so happened to be, where's Joseph going? Joseph is being sold as a slave into one of the most powerful men in Egypt, Potiphar. Basically the secret service agent to the Pharaoh, the head of the security. Is this just a coincidence? Or is God ordaining things for Joseph without him even knowing it. Even though God, the name God or the Lord or Yahweh is not mentioned in this narrative, we see the invisible hand of providence. We see God's fingerprints all over this. Now, this narrative doesn't have miracles or signs and wonders. And you, you wonder like, where is God in this? But behind it all, God is the main character. He's the hero working out his sovereign plan. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, when you don't see God actually show up on the pages, you have to realize that theologically he's behind it all, driving it to his end. So let's stop and just ask some questions. Who gave Joseph these dreams? God did. Behind the scenes, not out front and center. Did you ever think who this mysterious man was that helps 
Joseph on his way? Well, we don't know, but wasn't there another mysterious man that his dad, his, his dad Jacob wrestled with one night? Don't know who this mysterious man was, but somehow the, this man just showed up and said, they've gone to Dothan. We don't know who this man was. Is it just a coincidence that at just the right time that Joseph's brothers are throwing him into the pit, this particular band of Ishmaelite traders happened to come to that exact place at that exact time as they were exactly going to Egypt? And is it just a coincidence that Joseph is sold to Potiphar? Well, you could say, well, these are all just coincidences. Or you could say, this is God's sovereign, invisible hand of grace orchestrating these events in Joseph's life. Now, here's the thing about it. Does Joseph know this is happening? Do you often know things are happening at the time that they're happening? Nothing can stop God's purposes. Even the evil actions of hateful brothers who mean to harm Joseph, not even if it means that Joseph must endure the crucible of suffering for God to accomplish his purposes. I said earlier, my job as your pastor is to help you suffer well. One of the ways you suffer well is to realize that you may not exactly know what is going on, but behind it all, God is sovereignly working things to his desired end, and you can trust that God knows what he's doing. Now let's take it to another step. Often when I preach or teach from the Old Testament, we can just stop right there and say, okay, that's what the Old Testament teaches. But we have to ask the bigger question. Because remember in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus took those disciples on that journey and said the entire Old Testament points to me? The entire Old Testament's about Jesus. So we have to ask the question, okay, where does Jesus show up in this passage? Well, Jesus doesn't show up. But there are a lot of types and shadows in the story of Joseph. We see a picture of Jesus in the story of Joseph. Let's think of these comparisons. Just like Joseph, Jesus was the beloved son of his father, the only begotten son. Just like Joseph, Jesus was hated by his brothers. Before his resurrection, his brothers, he was not welcomed by his family. His brothers hated him. Just like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed by a few shekels of silver. Who betrayed Jesus? Judas. Who betrayed Joseph, his brothers? Just like Joseph, Jesus was left for dead to die alone on the cross. Okay, but that's where the comparisons end. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Jesus was perfect. Jesus suffered in our place on the cross. He was, he was stripped of his robe and crucified so that we could be forgiven. Then he rose again three days later that we might have eternal life. And as we'll see eventually later on at the end, Joseph, the rejected son, will be the source of salvation to the ones who rejected him. 
In the same way, Jesus was despised and rejected, but in a greater way than Joseph ever was. Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Joseph knew what it was like to be betrayed and sold out and left for dead. But Jesus, as the greater Joseph, also knows what it's like to be betrayed and sold out and left for dead. But he died on the cross for our sins. He rose again victorious so that we would never have to experience that rejection or that suffering in hell. So how do you suffer well? That was a question Don and I had the other day at the dinner table. That's what happens when you're married to a pastor at dinner. Your wife asks you theological questions, and you're like, I just want to eat my spaghetti. I don't want to. No, <laughs> no, I, I'm happy she asked those. And she's like, how do you suffer well? I want to know. And I'm like, well, let's think about this. There's a lot of different things. Um, I can't remember all the things I told her, um, but you look to Jesus who suffered in your place. And you worship him for his absolute sovereignty. One of the things I told Don, I remember now, um, I said this. I said, if you don't have a healthy dose of God's sovereignty in your suffering, that you'll, never, you'll never understand it and you'll never suffer well because you always wonder why this is happening to you. You've got to understand that God is doing this not because he doesn't love you, but because it's his sovereign purpose and you need to trust that he's, you know what he's doing. If, if you don't have that foundation, I think it's very hard to suffer well if you don't realize God is sovereignly. And then we ask the question, well, does God allow it or does God ordain it? doesn't really matter because, all right, so let's, ask, let's talk semantics. Does God permit suffering? Does God allow suffering? Or does God ordain suffering? Now, some of you may say, I like, I like the word permit. God permits it to happen. That's a little bit easier for me to take than God ordains it to happen. Let me ask you a question. If God, if you say God does not ordain it to happen, but God permits it to happen, let me ask you a question. If God permits it to happen, and he doesn't stop it, and he allows it to happen, that's no different than him ordaining it to happen, because he could stop it if he wanted to, and he doesn't. It's not because he doesn't love you, and it's not because he's all-powerful. It's because you kick it all the way down. God still, either he's ordaining your suffering for a purpose or he's allowing it, but the fact that he's allowing it and not stopping it means that he's still ordaining it to happen because he could stop it. So either way you look at it, you're going through it. And God is sovereignly taking you through it. Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the fires, I'll be with you. Not if you go through the waters or if you go through the fires, but when. So I've often said this, God may never promise to take you out of the suffering, but he always promises to be with you right through the suffering. Sometimes he may take you out, but if you have to go through it, he'll always be there with you. 
And so when you suffer, you look to Jesus who suffered in your place. He knows what it's like to suffer. He went through it, the worst of suffering. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He was betrayed. He knows what it's like to be despised. He went through that. He was rejected so that you and I would never be rejected. He suffered in our place so that you and I would never have to suffer God's judgment against our sins. So when we think about the life of Joseph, it helps us to understand how to suffer well even when it doesn't make sense. And we look at Jesus who's the ultimate model of suffering in our place and we keep our eyes fixed on him and know that God is doing it for his sovereign purposes. So there's two things you always need to remember. God is doing this for my good and for his glory. And so let me ask you the question. Do you want anything less than your good and his glory? Now, in our heart of hearts, we, we may say, yes, I want God's glory and I want God's good. But when you go through it, it's hard to say that, right? What do we say when we go through it? I want out of this, and I don't know if I want God's glory because this is painful. So our head theologically knows, I know God needs to get the glory. I know God's ordaining suffering. But your heart, when you go through this, it says, why am I going through this? I want out of this. God, please, please let me not have to experience this. And so when you go through suffering, there's the heart of what we're going through. There's the truth. And so part of going through suffering is to al align your heart with the truth to realize that it's okay to cry out to God, but behind all of it, there is the truth that God is sovereignly ordaining it for your good and for his glory, even though we may not fully understand it. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight, and, and Lord, help us to understand. Lord, it is hard to understand suffering. It is hard to think about those, those painful times we go through, and Lord, we look at what Joseph endured in the betrayal of his brothers and how he was left for dead, but Lord, in the whole process, you were behind it, you were working through it, and, we, and he didn't see it, and sometimes, Lord, we don't see it, but we need to trust that you're there for us, you're with us through it all, and Lord Jesus, thank you that you suffered in our place and that you understand suffering. And if there's anybody that understands suffering, it's you, Jesus, because of what you went through. And you're able to help us in our times of weakness. You're able to sympathize. So Lord, help us to always draw close to you. Help us keep our eyes on you. Help us to, to draw our strength from you. And we ask this in, in your name, Jesus. Amen.